That's very kind of you. All glory to God, right? All, all of us are nothing. It's all him. <clears throat> so, my imagination. Have you ever thought about what Sunday must be like for Jesus? I, I mean, today. I, I don't know really any of you well so I really don't have any idea where any of you are with Jesus so ask yourself just real quickly this question who is Jesus to me really on this Sunday morning somebody that the band has been singing about somebody you've heard about since you were a kid this God-man who came to earth and lived and spoke and died and rose again and you're not quite exactly sure what all how all that fits. Somebody that at some point in your life you prayed a prayer, you, God, I, I guess I believe and be my savior, whatever that means. Or have we been singing about this amazing person that none of our minds can fully comprehend God in the flesh God man who did all the miracles and many more than the Bible tell us about who took upon himself the sin of the world since we couldn't pay for our own sin and none of us could pay for each other's sin it experienced the most brutal of all executions possible. And if that wasn't bad enough, then experienced the wrath of God as he poured out his anger against sin. All so you and I could be set free from the stranglehold of sin in our lives and the condemnation of sin and could every day for the rest of our lives here live in a relationship with God that, that we could talk to him anytime, day or night, from anywhere in the face of this planet, in any language known to man, that we could call him father and he calls us my son because we're purchased by the blood of Jesus and set free from all the shackles that have held us and then, and then to know we don't have to fear that moment when our heart stops beating and our lungs stop breathing. It's just departure. It's a transition from here to there that fast. And we will then be in his presence forever with everyone else who has believed all of that to be true and has experienced it. Now you are... I am, all of us are somewhere in that continuum. Where is that this morning? And if as you look at that continuum of your relationship with Jesus and you're able to say, there's where I am, but I'd sure like to be a whole lot further on the journey. That's what this weekend has been all about. Would you agree with that? And may I suggest that the Father is saying to you and to me this morning, yes, yes, let's move it on the continuum because I would like so much more for you than what you have already experienced. I think Sunday's pretty exciting for Jesus. Already for about 15 or 16 hours, it has been Sunday. 
All of Asia has already worshipped. Hundreds of millions of Asians in all different kinds of settings with every instrument in Asia known to man. All of Africa has already worshipped. It's middle of the afternoon in Africa. All of Central Asia and the Middle East has already worshipped. All of both Europe's have already worshipped. Much of South America has already worshipped. Finally, it's American worship. So, so when we get to add our worship to all that Jesus has experienced every Sunday, what do you suppose it's like when finally the bands step up all across the United States? <laughs> I wonder if Jesus stands up in heaven and says, quiet down heaven, now listen to this. And I wonder if this morning he has said, and listen to this at Silver Birch Ranch. Can you imagine? I think Sunday is exciting to Jesus, but I think at the same time, it's heartbreaking to Jesus. Because while there's give or take about a billion of us who will worship today, that means there's almost six and a half a billion of us who have lots of other things to do on Sunday, and we're not going to be worshiping today. And let's be honest, of the billion who do, while they're worshiping, their heads are in other places focusing on other things. So maybe there's a half a billion who are really engaged in the worship today. That's why it's both an exciting day and a heartbreaking day because of so many people missing out on what could be. Would you agree? So I'm determined that for the rest of my life, (laughs) to the best of my ability, I'm not ever going to be a heartbreak to Jesus, just like I'm never going to see those lights in my back (laughs) rearview mirror. (laughs) I'm going to keep focusing on, Jesus, how can I be more and more who you want me to be. That's not through my effort. It's through opening myself up to you to say, please, Jesus, keep doing whatever it is you need to be doing, including that refining work that doesn't feel really good. So this morning, one man, four glimpses into his life journey that I think will teach us some really great lessons. I've loved looking at men. Aren't you so glad there's so many men in the Bible that we can look at their lives? And the little paragraph that I wrote for you that is in your booklet there, legacy. We are each building our legacies daily and hourly. It will outlive us. Our legacy will cast a shadow in which our descendants will live their lives You and I grew up living in the shadow of our parents. Our kids are growing up living in our shadows, right? So what is a God-honoring legacy? What shapes a legacy? Joshua was entrusted with perhaps the most challenging leadership role of all time, leading about three million people to conquer, divide, and occupy the promised land after the 40 years of wandering in the desert. Four snapshots into his life and a picture. Do I have a picture again this morning, fellas? How do they do that? Oh, you can't see it really good. I'm sorry. But the picture I took this morning uh, as a group of men were praying over in what I think you call the lodge. Is that right, Brad? And if I understand it right, when this place was not Silver Birch Ranch, it was a hunting fishing area with little hunting fishing lodges, uh, cabins. Is that right? And the lodge was, in fact, the bar in the middle of it all. Did I get that right? (laughs) Does God have a sense of humor or what? Can't you even imagine when they're building the bar, and then every time there's a bar party going on there, God is saying, just wait. (laughs) 
Now there's prayer meetings early in the morning in what used to be the bar. And Jesus is saying, yeah, yeah, that's what it's about. That's transformation. That's change. That's legacy building. First snapshot. Exodus 17. And the word, I'm going to give you a word for each of them. I think you kind of like that. So Exodus 17, and the word is teamwork. I'd like you to think for just a minute, who's the team that you are most connected with? Probably your first team is your family. Your parents, if they're still living. Your spouse, if you're married. Your children, if you have them. And your grandchildren, if you've got those. Anybody got great-grandchildren in the room? I see one hand. Amen, dear brother. <clears throat> How many of you, your parents are still living? Good, good. That's important because may I suggest part of our role, no matter how old we are or our parents, is to help them finish well. Do you agree with that? Help them finish well. And that's part of what Joshua's role was, may I suggest, with Moses, since we don't know really anything about his kids and so on. Exodus 17, you remember it? The place is called Rephidim. Uh, Moses has been <clears throat> leading the people out of Egypt and they've been out only a few weeks and they come to this place and there's no water and they're thirsty. And they start crying out. In fact, some of them say, take us back to Egypt. We're dying of thirst out here. And Moses says, God, what should I do? And God says, take a few of the leaders and separate yourself from all the noise of the crowd. And there's a big rock out there. Go stand by that rock and I'll meet you there. Lesson, lesson. In the network of people that you have in your life, family, co-workers, friends, when the clutter and the noise gets so loud you can't think, separate yourself like this weekend from the noise so you can think and listen so God can help you know, God, what's the next step that I need to take? to be who I need to be in this network of relationships that I have. As he's at the rock, God speaks to Moses and these group, small group of leaders. I believe Joshua was among them, even though he's not named. Strike the rock, and out of the rock is going to come pouring water enough for you and all these people and all your animals. And it happened. And then the next verse says, And the Amalekites heard about the, rock, the water-spewing rock and came and attacked them there. <laughs> and so Moses says to Joshua, You choose some men. And you're going to fight in the valley against the Amalekites. I'm going up on the hillside with the staff of God in my hand. May I give you a word that you've maybe never heard of? Miracle debris. <laughs> that staff was miracle debris because, you remember, it's with that staff that he struck the ground and, and uh, flies came up. It's with that staff that he struck the water and it turned to blood. He carried the staff as a reminder of all the times that God had done miraculous things. And this time, he goes up on the hillside with Aaron and her, and he lifts up the staff. Now, we presume he's praying up there, but it doesn't say that. What it says is he's standing on the hillside with the tangible, visible evidence of the miraculous power of God in the past. And Joshua is down in the valley fighting. Do you see the teamwork? Joshua's fighting with his uh, small army against an enemy. And he looks up and he sees his partner holding up the symbol of the power of God. Remember? Teamwork. <clears throat> so who are those people that you can most closely rely on when you're fighting the battle against the enemy? 
If you're married, that should be your spouse, right? There should be a prayer partnership and a teamwork there that you can together fight against the enemy, whatever that enemy is in your life. If you have children, it should be you and your children. Dads, isn't it a great privilege to be a dad? Amen? And have you figured out, dads, that God's made an incredible, unique design between dads and daughters and dads and sons? We were all little boys, and we all wanted to be just like dad. Little boys are out on the playground in kindergarten and first grade, so what's your dad do? My dad's a fireman. My dad's a doctor. My dad's, that's what we were as little boys. Even if we didn't particularly like our dads, when we were on the playground, our dad was a superhero. Am I right? But we wanted to kind of be like dad. We wanted to put our feet in dad's shoes. We, we, we wanted to shoot guns like dad shot. We want to fish like dad fish. We want to, that's why probably you cheer for the same teams that your dad cheered for. And have you figured out your dad didn't have to tell you, son, I'm really excited about, he didn't have to tell you that. You could tell when your dad was excited. You could tell when your dad was upset. You could tell when your dad was angry. <laughs> and have you figured out you became just like your dad. There's that natural bent of becoming like our dads. We have to work hard at not becoming like those negative things of our dads because that's part of the DNA of father and son. So dads, look at your boys. Granddads, look at your grandsons. They're becoming like you. Model well. Fathers and daughters, have you figured out that there's a very special relationship between dads and daughters? Amen. Do you know why? Inside of every little girl, <clears throat> there's a man shape. And the man shape is someday going to be filled by a man that she wants to be married to. So is the man shape a reflection of you, dad? Or is it a rejection of you, dad, because they want to marry somebody totally different from you? You see that? That's very powerful, and God designed it that way. That's why for a little girl, the safest, most wonderful memory that God's designed in the life of a little girl is sitting on her daddy's lap with his arms around her saying, I love you. You're my little princess. Nobody's going to ever hurt you. It's a picture of God wrapping his arms around her as a woman. I love you and nobody's ever going to hurt you. And yet there's a huge percentage of women, as you know, the Me Too movement now. And while that may be way out of reality, there's a huge number of women today who sadly, the men they should have been able to trust when they were little girls, they couldn't trust. And very wrong things happened. There's millions of women now who are still dealing with very wrong things that dads or stepdads or uncles did to them. Am I right? None of us in here knows everything about our wives, no matter how long you've been married. You can assume some painful things happened in the young lives of your wives. That's why our greatest privilege as a husband is to nurture their heart. When she says yes, and you invite her to be your spouse, here's my heart, 
It's the most precious thing I have to give you. Don't drop it. Don't step on it. Don't squeeze it. Protect it. Protect it. Love it. And help it to heal from the things that were done to it that you don't know anything about. You agree with that? Joshua teamwork and every time Moses's arms got weary which of course they would the battle started going the other way and Joshua and his guys started losing and so he kept lifting up his so remember what he did Aaron and her said why don't you sit down on that nice comfortable rock and we'll stand on either side of you and we'll hold up your arms who's holding up your arms and who's the team and who are you looking to who's in the battle with you Second picture, Exodus 24 and Exodus 34. The word cloud, not not IBM and, and technology cloud, but similar. In Exodus 19, they come to the mountain, and God speaks to them and gives them the, the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 24, God says to Moses, come on up on the mountain and meet with me. In fact, he says, stay here. So Joshua says to, pardon me, Moses says to Joshua, come with me. Where are we going? Up the mountain. Why? To meet with God. Really? Yeah. And it tells us in Exodus 24 that they went up and there was a cloud on the top of the mountain and they sat outside the cloud, the two of them, for six days, six days, And finally, Moses hears a voice from inside the cloud. Come on in here and be with me. Can you imagine Moses saying to Joshua, now you stay here, I'm going in. Why? God invited me. What's in there? I don't know. What's going to happen to you in there? I don't know. When will you be coming out? I don't know. But you stay here. 40 days and 40 nights, Moses is in the cloud. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us, but I believe Joshua, who's sitting outside the cloud, could hear as God is talking to Moses audibly. And you remember uh, Exodus 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, all takes place in there. As God is explaining to Moses, here's what I want the relationship between my people and me to be. I want to describe to you a tabernacle, an Ark of the Covenant, a table of showbread, worship, because I want the worship of me to be unique, unlike anything you've ever seen in Egypt. I'm a holy God, and I want you to be a holy people, and I want our relationship to transform you and define you. And Joshua's listening to all of this. Meanwhile, down there at the base of the mountain with Aaron and all these people, what's going on? We don't know what happened to that old guy up there, but make us a god and take us back to Egypt. Remember? And what did they make? Golden calf. And don't you love it that the Bible says, so Aaron says, well, give me all your jewelry. And he does. And and when Moses comes back down and Moses says, what happened here? He said, I took their jewelry. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. That's exactly what the Bible says. Can you believe that? I, I threw it in the fire and out came this calf. Wow, we, we can really make good excuses for our stupid behavior, can't we? Moses is up there and God says after 40 days, Moses, go down. The people you led out of Egypt have turned away from me and made an idol and called it their God. 
And so Moses and Joshua come back down, you remember. Powerful. As Joseph, did I say Joseph? Joshua learns about the power of the cloud. The cloud representing the presence, the holy, majestic presence of God. In Exodus 33, it tells us that Moses pitched a little tent outside the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And anyone could go and meet with God anytime they wanted, but there's only two people that are named that ever went in that little tent, Moses and Joshua. And it tells us in Exodus 33 that when Moses went there, his young aide Joshua would go with him, and all the people would stand at the entrance to their tents watching because the cloud would come down and hover over the tent when Moses was in there meeting with God. And they would wait to say, to hear what is he going to say when he comes out from meeting with God. And Joshua would go with him. And in Exodus 33, 11, it says that when Joshua was finished meeting with God, he would leave the tent and go out and meet with the people to tell them what God had said to him. But his young aide Joshua stayed in the tent. I can imagine it. Joshua and, and Moses are in the tent, and again he's listening to Moses and God have this audible conversation in the cloud. And the conversation comes to an end, and Moses says, okay, Joshua, I'm going out to tell the people, sir, w- would you mind if I just stayed in here a little longer? This is so incredible. Would it be okay if I just stayed here for a while? And wise Moses, knowing that God was preparing the next leader, You stay with God. I'm going out to talk to the people. May I ask you a question? Do you have a place where the cloud is there? I've only been here, as I remember, three times in my life, Brad, if I remember correctly. And I believe the last time I was here, it wasn't in this building, it was in the other building because I was here with my daughter and my son-in-law who had brought the youth group of the church that we were a part of. I think that was four years ago. It was winter time, as I recall, and it was a powerful time. But while the conference was going on, this dad's heart was breaking a little bit because I knew we only have one child, my wife and I. She met her husband at the Moody Bible Institute. At that time, I believe they had two children, maybe three, three now that I think about their ages. And they had sensed God's call to go to the mission field. They live now in Senegal, West Africa, and have been since the summer of 2014, and I believe that was the winter of 20. So while I was celebrating what I was watching, all these high schoolers and all this activity, I was knowing it will not be much longer and I won't see my grandchildren or my daughter for long periods of time. What I didn't know was God was leading them to Bamako, Mali. If you know much about West Africa, you may know that Bamako is the capital city of Mali, and Mali is one of those places. You've heard of Boko Haram, and you've heard of Al-Qaeda. They went to Mali, to Bamako, Mali, where there used to be more than 100 missionaries in and around that city, and when they got there, there was only a small handful. My three little granddaughters went to what used to be Bamako Christian Academy, a two-story building that had had at one time almost 150 expat, uh, foreign missionary kids. The year they were there, which would have been 2016, there were three children in the school, my three grandkids. And that was it, in a two-story building, because everybody else had left. They were only there one year because the Al-Qaeda activity became really aggressive. 
and they were asked by their mission to leave for your own good and go to another country, so they went across the border to Senegal. I tell you that, my brothers, because this is a unique moment in time. We, this group of, exact group of people will never again be together, ever, until we're together in God's presence. We will never be able to reproduce this. God loves those kinds of gatherings, and he loves to do something unique, special, significant, memorable. So don't blow this off as just a few minutes together, breakfast, and we're on our way. Anticipate God may want to be doing something very significant in you this morning. This is one of those places of the cloud for me. That's why when you called me, I was so excited to come. Uh, Forest Springs Camp is another one of those places for me. Camp Spofford in New Hampshire is another one of those places for me. By God's grace, I've got a whole bunch of places around the world where I've had the incredible life-changing privilege of meeting with God in the cloud. How about you? Where is the places in your life journey where you've had a chance to spend extended time with God and it was life-changing. If you're a dad or a granddad, and if I was to ask your children or your grandchildren, so where does your dad or your granddad go to meet with God and it's powerful and it's sacred and it's life-changing? If I was to ask your wife if you're married, so where does your husband go to hear from God so he can be and do what God wants to happen in your family, so he can lead your family as a God-honoring man of God? And how many of our wives would say, the cloud? That would probably be in front of the television. The cloud, his office with his computer. We have to change that. Would you agree? One of the great parts of the privilege of being a man in a family and the fact that we've got both sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters following us is the incredible impact of influence that we have in their lives. And that doesn't happen when you say to your kids or your grandkids, sit down, I want to talk to you. No. They learn with their eyes far more than with their ears. Do you agree with that? So where's the cloud? By my calculation, as I read the scriptures, Moses hiked up that mountain eight times to meet with God. Eight three of them for 40 days and 40 nights. Joshua, he knew there was something miraculous, amazing about this cloud where Moses would go to meet with God and it awakened in him a hunger for that kind of a relationship with God. And that's why I believe he was selected to be the next leader to lead three million people in and conquer the land because God knew that hunger for him to meet with me, I will be able to lead him and guide him. He won't go running off on his own. Third glimpse, third word. Let me think. Got it. Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Do you remember? 
They're at a place called Kadesh Barnea. And they can look across and see what God had referred to as the promised land. And Moses said, I need 12 guys, one from every tribe, who is trusted by your tribe, who is a guy who's mature. In fact, you're a leader in your tribe. And I want you to go over there on an investigative spy out the land trip. Check it out. Uh, bring back not just a report, but some samples. Fruit, if you can. Help us know what's over there. None of us have been there. It was hundreds of years ago that, that God uh, blessed our great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham with that land. We, we've heard a little bit about it, but none of us have seen it. I need 12 guys. And can you imagine if Moses, you, and you, and you, and you, and two of them were Joshua and Caleb. And they went. And they went on the tour, and they came back. And do you remember what happened? Ten of them, one after another, it's an amazing, wonderful land. But the cities are big, the walls are high, and some of the people look like giants. In fact, one of them said, we felt like grasshoppers as we considered who we were as compared to them. And Caleb stands up and says, what are you talking about? While that is an accurate description of what we saw and how we felt, have you forgotten about the plagues? Have you forgotten about the Red Sea opening up for us? Have you forgotten about the fact that we've been eating manna, a bread delivery, every day that falls from heaven? Our God is much bigger than that. And they said, shut up, sit down. But God said, he's a man who follows me wholeheartedly and in him is a different spirit. Joshua stands up and says, he's right. Let's not let fear overwhelm us here. Let's follow God as we have, and he will bring us the victory. Well, it wasn't exactly a democracy, but you remember what happened? What happened? Fear, panic swept through the people. And they said, we're going back to Egypt. Kill these guys. And God said, Moses, Aaron, Caleb, Joshua, step back. I'm going to kill them all, and I'm going to start over again with you. And Moses, no, God, no, 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 please, don't, don't kill them. All right? But every man age 20 or older is going to die in the desert. Not one of you is going to see that land. Your children are going to be the ones that I'll lead into the land because you faithless people. And you ten spies, and God killed them on the spot. They died standing right there. In front. And you too, Joshua and Caleb, because in you is my spirit, and you follow me wholeheartedly, you will go into the land. I'm trying to remember what's the word I have written down that I wanted to give you. The first word was teamwork. The second word was cloud. Wholehearted. He follows me wholeheartedly. That was a defining moment day, you'll remember. Now here's something very powerful about that. Have you found, my brothers, that sometimes... 
living life as good as you can, as faithful to God as you can, you still suffer the consequences of other people's mistakes. For 40 years, they wandered around basically waiting for people to die. (laughs) Joshua, Caleb, and Moses among them. Wouldn't it have been fair for Joshua and Caleb to say, wait a minute, God, we were men of great faith. How about you let us go in and you just wander them around? No, they wandered with them. If you grew up in an alcoholic or abusive or adulterous family, you know what it's like to live in the shame and the pain of terrible mistakes your parents have made. If that was you, then you understand how your children have lived in the pain and the shame of the terrible mistakes that you've made. None of us can go back and change the past. None of us. All of us are moving forward, but we can decide on days like this. I will be a follower of God with my whole heart wholeheartedly in me will be a different spirit and to the best of my ability helping my team my family my network of friends be those kinds of people the fourth and last picture joshua chapter one and chapter chapter three moses has died it's 40 years later all of that faithless generation has died and god says to joshua Moses, my servant is dead. It's over. No. Now, you get ready to lead all these people. Do you remember what it says in Psalm 33, verse 11, where it says that the plans and the purposes of God remain firm through all generations. God was going to bring his people into the next, into the promised land, even if he had to wait to lead the next generation is. Moses, my servant, is dead, but it's not over. Now it's your turn. Get ready to lead the people in. Do you remember that God says in Joshua chapter 1, now be strong and courageous. I will be with you as I was with Moses. Amen? You see the legacy? And then he says, you have the law. Meditate on it day and night. Don't let it depart from your mouth. That will guide you. And then it comes to Joshua chapter 3, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible. It begins by saying that they left Shittim was a place, and they moved to the banks of the Jordan. Shittim is very, very important. Numbers 25, I think it is. It was at Shittim that the remaining of the Israelite men were bored with the Israelite women and had relations with the women of the surrounding nations. It was a horrible place of moral failure again. And so they leave that place behind and they go to the banks of the Jordan to get ready to cross over. As we leave this place, my dear brothers, in a couple of hours, I want to suggest that you leave here shame and guilt and failure and remorse of the past. That's part of why we have this over here. You might want to even just write down on that white piece of paper a memory that you want to leave in the hands of Jesus or a failure or something that has weighed you down so you go from here as a man who is fully set free from anything of the past because it's in the hands of Jesus. Amen? Don't carry the load of the past. They moved away from Shittim and they came to the edge of the Jordan and they camped there for three, three days 
And Joshua says, now consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord is going to do amazing things among us. We're going over. And then he says, Levites, take up the ark. Go ahead of the people. The people will follow, keeping their eyes and their focus on the ark. Question, what's in the ark of the covenant? The tablets that Moses brought down, the law, the word of God, and a little jar of manna that never spoiled, right? (laughs) And then it says in Joshua 3, verse 15, now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. (laughs) Don't don't you love that? God, we would have surely thought that you could have figured out that it would be good. The Jordan, most of the time, in many places, is just a little creek. It's just a little trickle. Uh, We can walk across that, but have you ever stood at the side of a flooded river? I mean, a raging flooded river, and here comes trees and cars and houses. I have. Uh, Hurricane season. Go stand at the Jordan River at flood stage. You who are carrying the ark, step into the river. (laughs) And when you do, the water will stop flowing from upstream and it will pile up in a heap and it will dry out. Then you go stand in the middle of the dry Jordan and all the people will cross over. How many people do you suppose stood at the, count me in, I'd like to do that. And how many said, I think that's a great idea for you two guys. (laughs) Now think about that. As a dad, as a husband, as a granddad, as a son. Think about the network of friends you have, your coworkers, your church friends, your social network. I'm assuming it was probably eight guys, those were very long poles, who would take up the ark, approach that flooded Jordan. How high did the water get? I don't know, but pretty soon it started receding. Now, how long does it take almost three million people and their animals and their belongings to cross a dry riverbed? My guess is they stood there 12 hours, 15 hours. Maybe they changed off, but can you imagine the privilege of standing in the dry Jordan holding it? while everybody is going by. And as people are going by, can't you imagine? Thank you, thank you, hold that ark, thank you. They get all the way across and then those guys are still standing in the middle of the dry Jordan and God says to Joshua, one more thing. Remember what it was? Send 12 guys back down into the dry Jordan River and every man pick up the biggest boulder you can carry. Why? Memories, stones of remembrance. Bring up that boulder 
and bring it up out of the river and set it down at the place where you're going to spend the first night in the new land and pile them up as a marker. Joshua 4, 24. And when your descendants come by this place years from now and they see that pile of 12 big rocks and your grandchildren ask, so what's the pile of rocks? You tell them. You walked through the dry Jordan River just as we, it says, we, Joshua was speaking, had come through the Red Sea between the two walls of water. Legacy. So what are your stones of remembrance? Is it pictures on the wall? Is it artifacts that you've collected in your life? For me, it really is stones. That story grabbed my heart a long time ago, and because I like to travel internationally and those stupid metal detectors are always grabbing something, I figured out they can't figure out what a stone is in your pocket. So I've got literally over a hundred stones in my home and in my office, and by every stone there's a little piece of paper, date and place, a place where I had an encounter with the power of God. My daughter, now 40, just a couple of days ago, has said to me a couple of times, Dad, when you go, I want your journals and your stones. You know why I have them in my home, in my office? There are times, my brothers, when life gets confusing, heavy, painful. And so I get up from wherever I'm sitting, and I go over, and I look at the stones. Sometimes I'll pick them up. Oh, yeah, I, I remember that. <laughs> oh, wow, that was a powerful one. Some of those stones are 30 years old. How do you remember the stories of you and God? Because we all forget too quickly. Stones of remembrance. Some way of remembering. Now it's not in your notes, but I want to give you one more the very end of Joshua's life. You remember, Joshua 24. And he gathers all the people together. <clears throat> I'm now an old man. The time has come, like Paul wrote, for my departure. But I know you and your ancestors and your descendants. So now I'm challenging you to make a decision. <clears throat> Choose you this day, say it with me, whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. There's going to come a day when the end is near and you know it. <coughs> Statistically, very, very few of us in this room will die quickly. Statistically, most of us will have days maybe weeks, to linger. We know the end is very near. We're laying in our bed waiting for it to happen. I've, I've been at the bedside of many. Maybe you have too. I have yet for a dying man within hours or days of death to say, Pastor Doug, would you bring me my stock portfolio, please, and just read to me what's the value of my investments? 
Would you bring to me, please, some of my coworkers who just sit here and tell me the stories of those 40 years of working? You know what they asked for? Bring my family. Read God's word. Put on worship music. I want to leave this earth from the cloud, surrounded by the people most precious to me, helping to focus them on what is most precious to him, a life well lived for his glory. When I was in Fargo, I think I did 105 weddings in eight years because we had a big college ministry. When I was in Williams Bay, I think I did about 108 funerals in eight years. And and about the third year in, a, a man who was very close to my father was dying, and he had two sons, and I knew them, neither of which wanted anything to do with Jesus. As he was dying, I was reading from his Bible, which was all marked up and all beat up. It looked like he'd used it for a doorstop. At his funeral, it seemed as though God really struck me. Preach from his Bible. So for a couple of days, from the day that he died to the day of his funeral, I was scouring through his Bible to see what did he underline? What did he mark in the margins? And so when I stood up, and his sons are sitting right in front of him, if Bill was able to tell you today what's most important in his life, I believe this is what he would tell you because here's his Bible. And I had taken about six or eight scriptures, and I read from the margins, and I explained why I thought those verses were so important to him. And those who knew him well, there was lots of head nodding. And then I felt led of God to do something I'd never done before. I closed the Bible, I got down off the platform, and I came to his sons. I have no idea what the estate is that your father has left to you, but this is the most valuable asset that your father had, and I now entrust it to you. Cherish it, treasure it, and if you will allow it to shape your lives, you two men will be changed men. Well, as you might imagine, they melted. And they were in church the next Sunday. And it changed their lives because they determined that even though they were already in their 50s, it wasn't too late to change their legacy. So put your hand on the shoulder of the man next to you. And start praying right now that God would do God's best work for that man to be the best man that he can become by God's design. That might be conviction. It might be strength. It might be encouragement. But let's pray for each other, asking God to unleash his power in us to be all of the man that he has designed us to be.